Well, I have the privilege as a pastor to, to be a part of a lot of weddings, attend a lot of weddings. Weddings are beautiful. You have, you know, the groomsmen come in and they look dapper and handsome. You have the bridesmaids come in looking beautiful. The flower girl has her little petals and she dumps the basket down and waves at mom and dad. And the parents are like, get to the front. Right, and the ring bearer comes in. And then the music changes and the doors open. And what does the crowd do? They stand to their feet and all eyes are on the bride. And here comes the bride looking radiant in this beautiful, elegant, ornate dress. The long train of her dress, someone usually holding it. She's carrying flowers, flowers in her hair. Uh, It's an unbelievable sacred moment. The word sacred literally means holy. In this moment, she is sanctified, which also means holy, holy means set apart. There is no other day in their entire lives like the day of their wedding. It's a sacred day. There's nothing like her dress. She'll never probably wear a dress that beautiful, that expensive the rest of her lives uh, because, again, it's, it's a sacred moment. I've never, in all my years in ministry, been to a wedding, and I doubt you have either, where the crowd stands, the doors open, and here comes the bride dressed in trash bags, Gum matted in her hair, makeup all over the place. She's carrying a 40-ounce bottle of beer. Ah! Here comes the bride. I don't know. I've, I've never seen that, and I probably never will. Again, because weddings are sacred, something holy, something set apart about them. And what kind of bride is the church to Christ? Well, we sometimes look like a bride in trash bags. But Jesus sees us as an ornate, radiant, pure bride. He sees us not for who we are, but who he is making us to be. He is making us holy. So turn to Exodus 19 and 20. Today's section might be the most well-known in the entire Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. And we see the Ten Commandments everywhere. You go to Crown Point Square on the northeast end of the square at the courthouse, literally in stone are the Ten Commandments. They're ubiquitous, yet completely misunderstood. So, let me give you a recap. God brought his people, his enslaved chosen people, Israel, out of enslavement and bondage in Egypt through great signs and wonders, the plagues, and Israel is now leaving Egypt in a exodus. That's where we get the name of the book, Exodus. So they're leaving, they're heading into the wilderness, and they're on their way to the promised land. But they don't make a direct beeline to the promised land. They don't go there directly. God has them actually make a major detour. Why? Because although uh, they they were uh, leaving Egypt... God was getting Egypt out of the people. The people left Egypt, but Egypt was still in the people, if that makes any sense. God was working on them. And if they got the land, but they did not get God, they eternally missed the point. It's about God. So notice we're in chapter 19 last time. Last week we were in chapter 14. We are kind of flying over several chapters. So let me give you a quick summary of those chapters. And there's this repetitive pattern we see with the Israelites, Times are tough, they get in trouble, they grumble, they complain to Moses, Moses intercedes for them, he cries out to the Lord, God intervenes, God delivers. You see this over and over. 
Chapter 14, they come to the Red Sea, this massive body of water, and here come the Egyptian army ready to kill them. And the Israelites are like, oh God, why? We should just go back to Egypt. They grumble, they complain. Moses intercedes, God intervenes, and what happens to the water? The splits, the Red Sea splits, and they walk across on dry land. The water closes up over the army of Egypt. Those who are trying to kill them, God kills them. And then in chapter 15, Moses gives this beautiful praise song of thanksgiving for deliverance. And then we look in later in chapter 15. They're without water for three days. Now bear in mind, they are in a desert. In a desert without water for three days. That's not good. So they're dehydrated, they're hot, they're tired, they're thirsty, they grumble, they complain. Moses, again, intercedes. God intervenes, and they get this bitter, non-potable water. God changes into drinkable water. Chapter 16, no food. People grumble. Moses intercedes. God intervenes. God delivers, and it rains down bread from heaven called manna. Anyone know what manna means in Hebrew? What is it? Now, personally, you remember the Abbott and Costello bit, who's on first, what's on second? I feel like this would be a great Abbott and Costello bit. Israelite comes up to Moses. Moses, there's this bread-like, wafer-like substance all over the ground. What is it? Yes. No, 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 what is it? Correct. No, I'm asking you, what is it? What is it? No, that's what I'm asking. Okay. I think it would make a great bit. All right, no one else thinks about stuff like this. Man. Chapter 17, again, no water. Remember, they are in a desert. People grumble. Moses intercedes. God intervenes. God provides water from a rock. Later, the Amalekites come against against Israel, and Moses intercedes. God delivers, and he brings them victory. Then in chapter 18, we have a fantastic chapter on wise leadership development. So we get to chapter 19. Go ahead and turn to Exodus 19. Follow along in your Bibles or on your phones. Verse 2. So they set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him of the mountain, from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. So we have Sinai, also known as Horeb, the mountain of God, this significant mountain in Jewish history in the Old Testament. It's actually where God appeared before Moses in the form of a burning bush in Exodus 3, and it's where the prophet Elijah later runs to, flees to, in 1 Kings 19. This is a significant spot, but we don't actually know where it is. We don't know the exact location. Scholars have a few ideas. We, we know it's in the wilderness of Sinai, in the Sinai Peninsula somewhere. It's a desert wilderness. It looks like this. If you could show a picture here. Do we got the picture? There we go. Something like that. Rocky, dusty, dry, desert wilderness terrain. And they are here for almost a year. From this point, through Exodus, through Leviticus, to Numbers 10, verse 10, they're here at Mount Sinai. Now, where is Israel in this scene? Look at these verses again. And where's Moses here? Remember, we talked a few weeks ago, there's a holy distinction. In fact, the word holiness kind of means distinction. There's a separation. There's a geographical holy distinction. The people are before the mountain. They're actually at a distance from the mountain. 
while Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And in this chapter, Moses three times goes up the mountain to meet with God, back down to meet with the people. Up, down, up, down. You look at verse 20 and verse 25, which is impressive for an 80-year-old. I'm half that age. I would be dead meat after the first up and down. Moses ascends to meet with divinity. He descends to meet with humanity. God granted Moses this special, unique role known as mediator. Write that down. Mediator. Moses was the mediator. A mediator is one who intercedes on behalf of the people. It's like the liaison between God and his people. Back in the day, when I was in sixth grade, I'm pretty sure I thought all girls had cooties. I was afraid of girls, afraid to talk to girls. Still am. Uh, and I remember my, my, I, had, I had a crush on this girl named Jessie. And my buddy Steven, my best friend, I'm like, hey, Steven, can you go talk to Jesse for me? I think I did one of those, if you like, like me, check mark here. So he's like, oh, he delivered. And he, he was my mediator. He interceded for me because I was afraid of girls. Here are the people. And there's a fear of God, but it's a healthy fear. There's a holy fear, a holy reverence. Look at verses 7 through 15. Moses speaks to the people. The people respond. Moses reports those words to the Lord. Moses was the first high priest of the people of Israel. He was a representative of the people to speak and act on their behalf in God's divine, holy presence. And once again, as we see all throughout the Old Testament, Moses, like many things, foreshadows Jesus, points to Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our intercessor. Jesus is our ultimate high priest. And he's not humanity who ascends to divinity and back to humanity. He is divinity who descended to humanity, praise God. So why do they need a mediator? Could God not hear their prayers? Could God not talk to them directly? Actually, he does that in chapter 20. We're going to see that. Of course he heard them. We see that earlier in the book of Exodus. He heard their cries. He heard their prayers. So why? Why did there need to be a mediator? One word holy. Holiness, God's holiness. And this is a word that's lost its cachet. Holy moly, holy roller, uh, holy cow, holy smokes, Batman. Holy. But holy means to be set apart, means to be completely perfect, unstained, morally pure, superior to all else, in a class by oneself, unique with no rivals, holy calls attention to all God is. R.C. Sproul says that God is not love, 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 grace, 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 justice, 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 though he is all those things and more, but he is holy, holy, holy for all eternity. And the angels cry out. We see that Old Testament, New Testament, several passages, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy. He is distinct from the ordinary. God has absolute otherness. The creator is not like his creation. And so, people, things, places, even time itself, as we see in the Sabbath, were to be made holy in order to enter into God's holy presence in a process called consecration. Now, consecration and sacred have the same root word meaning holy. It means to be made holy. You're creating sacred space. We cannot approach God on our own terms. It's by invitation only. 
And they were to approach God as he instructed. They were to approach God as he determined. So consecration rituals they would do to to put the person or the object or the place into a state of purity, making them fit for divine use, allowing proximity to God so they could be near to God in his presence. Now conversely, if they touched something impure or unclean, they would lose this state of consecrated purity and they would be unfit for God's holy presence. Now later, we're not going to get into this in this series, but later in Exodus we see they had a priestly service. So the Levites, the Levitical tribe of the Jewish people, were the priestly tribe, and they would have one person once a year that could enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. That's this partitioned area where the manifest presence of God was. Once a year this man could go in, and he was the high priest. And he couldn't just go in blazingly. I mean, he had to wash himself seven times. He had to wear the exact garb, the exact garments that God required. All this ornate everything, everything with strategic purpose. He could not have a fiber on his clothes from another piece of clothing. He could not have a stain, couldn't have hair out of place. I mean, he had to be perfect. He had to be spotless. And so there was ritual purification, washing, garments. He would have to approach cautiously, fearfully, in fact, they would tie a rope to his ankle and they would sew in bells on the hem of his robe. And the reason is, if they stopped hearing the bells ringing, they knew, uh-oh, he did something he shouldn't have done in God's holy presence. He dead. And they would literally pull him out from the Holy of Holies, out of the curtain. Man. And we have the audacity to have such a infinitesimal view of God's holiness, that we just live however we want. We don't live in reverence. It's a serious thing to be in God's holy presence. Look at verse 10 and 11. The people needed to be consecrated. They were stained by sin. Verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Man, that's harsh. Is it though? Because the wages of sin is death. When unholy encounters the holy, this is what happens. Without atonement, without purification, there's death. You know, imagine being invited by the president himself to the White House. And you get there and you're all excited. You're dressed to the nines. And you get there and they say, oh, no, no, you just have to wait outside the gate. I'm sorry. You can't come in. Well, but, but the president invited me. I know, but you have to wait outside the gate. The people were at a distance. They could not go near to the mountain. There were limits. They had to wait at the gate, if you will. Why? Why not just approach God? Again, holiness. Moses is saying, listen, God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. You know, in our solar system, we have the sun, The sun is a burning ball of gas and fire. It's 109 times larger than the earth. You stare at the sun for over a minute, what's going to happen? You're at least going to need glasses from here on. You're going to have some permanent eye damage. And it's 93 million miles away. It's that powerful. It's light. It's heat. It's radiant. It's radiant. It's unique. It's powerful in our solar system. You might even say it's, in a way, it's holy. It's set apart. It's different. And yet, the closer you get, 
the more intense it is. It incinerates anything that approaches it. How much holier and brighter is our God who holds the universe in the palm of his hands? This is not a casual meeting of equals. It's invitation only. And so the wrong approach equals death. Now look at verses four through six. Here's what God says to the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's so beautiful. Verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for the earth. All is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God reminds his people of his grace, his mercy, his deliverance. He's establishing a covenant called the Mosaic Covenant, a covenant through Moses with the people. And every covenant has to be ratified with conditions. So notice there's an if-then statement. Therefore, if you do this, then this will happen. Therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That sounds awesome. My treasured possession. We get to be, we belong to God. We're treasured by him. You think of the most valuable thing in your house. Billions of times more worth than that we have to God. His treasured possession. A kingdom of priests They would have full access to him anytime. They would enjoy his perfect presence. They would represent him to the world. And likewise, a holy nation, a people set apart. They were to be holy as God is holy, a morally pure people dedicated entirely to the service of God. That sounds great. But they would quickly find out that they cannot obey him perfectly. They cannot keep their end of the bargain. They cannot keep the covenant, which speaks to one of the primary purposes of God's law, which we'll get to shortly. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, so they had three days to consecrate themselves, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, and now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder, and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then we're going to see in chapter 20, God verbally speaks the Ten Commandments to the people. Now look at chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, and they trembled. They stood far off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God is. Now that sets up for next week. But listen, you had God entering the scene, and there's thunder, there's lightning, there's thick darkness, there's clouds, there, there are these heavenly, divine, angelic trumpets that we can't even fathom, can't even imagine blowing so loud it's deafening. You have the voice of God speaking to the people, this incredible sight 
unbelievable. God's presence is awesome. But it's also terrifying. Psalm 97 says, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. I'm not talking mountains like the dunes. <laughs> Our first couple months here, I was talking about how I'm from Colorado, I miss mountains, and someone says, well, have you been to the dunes? I said, I'm not trying to be rude, but have you seen a mountain? <laughs> I'm talking Mount Everest. God steps on the scene and it melts like wax before him. We don't even begin to fathom God's holiness. He is awesome and terrifying. All creation quakes before the awesome holiness and splendor of our God, but it's terrifying for unholy people. And Moses is saying, do not be afraid. God will not capriciously exterminate you, but recognize his holiness. He's not going to destroy you. He wants to refine you. And God is revealing himself to his people. He needed them to know who he is. He's not like a God like the ones that they left in Egypt, these fake gods, these pseudo-gods. He couldn't be easily manipulated like them. He wasn't sexual like them, vainglorious, corruptible. God is holy, holy, holy. He is the true one and awesome God. Awesome and terrifying. And this is what sets us up for Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, the Ten Commandments, most well-known, even atheists, People of other religions, people who know nothing about the Bible probably have heard the Ten Commandments. Do you realize, by the way, in this passage, it doesn't actually say, here are the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say anything about Ten Commandments. The Jewish people refer to this as, my Bible does, by the way. I don't know your heading does. My, the heading does, but in the text itself, it doesn't. The Jewish people refer to this as the Decalogue. Decalogue means ten words. And these are obviously significant, these Ten Commandments. There's eight prohibitive commands, you shall not do this, do not do this, and two positive commands. And they're the first of 613 commandments in the book of the law in the first five books of the Old Testament, 613. They're foundational like the U.S. Constitution. So you have the U.S. Constitution, then you have the Bill of Rights, those are the first amendments, then all the amendments after that, all the laws on top of that. So these are the base ones. These are the basic foundational laws and then all the commandments off of that. Now look at verse two, chapter 20. This is the prologue. God says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, brought you out of slavery. These commands are preceded by who God is and what he's done. Because of who I am and how I redeemed you, this is what a holy people look like. Scholars refer to this, theologians, as the two tablets. So think of like the first tablet, if you will, as the first four commandments, and the next six as the second tablet. You have the vertical commands in our relationship with God in the first four, and the horizontal commands, our relationship with others in the next six. And this is how Jesus summarizes them, by the way, in Matthew 22. Love God. Love others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look at these. Now, by the way, each of these commandments could be its own sermon. So we're not going to go that deep. I wish we could. We just don't have time. We're going to do a quick summary. First four are vertical. This is our relationship to God, which is to be worshipful and humble. Number one, no other gods besides me worship God alone. He gets the highest place of prominence in our hearts, or at least he should. Now, this is the first commandment. 
So it makes sense that this is the first commandment in history that is broken in Genesis 3. The serpent is like, don't you want to be like God? And that's the hook that gets them. They want to be their own God. They want to be God. So self is placed before God. And this is the first commandment we break, and we break this constantly, all the time. Misplaced worship is the root of all sin, and it has destroyed and shattered humanity. But God desires our affections because we are rightfully his. He is the only one deserving of all worship, all honor, all glory, all praise. Number two, now this is similar. Do not worship something created. God does not share his glory with anyone. And we think of, you know, idols, graven images as like wooden idols. I've been to India, and in India, they literally bow down to wooden stone idols. We think, well, I don't do that. No, what we do is much worse because it's subtle. Our idols are subtle. They are insidious. Maybe these are our idols. Tablets, phones, entertainment. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, significant other. Maybe it's uh, 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 comfort. Maybe it's status. Whatever the case may be, those are the idols of our heart. Those are the created things that we worship. And Romans 1 says we exchange the glory of God for images of things in creation. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship creation rather than creator. Number three, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, we tend to think of this as don't use God or Jesus as a cuss word. And that certainly applies, but it's more extensive than that. This is about reverence. Remember, names represented character. They were synonymous with character, and so misusing his name misrepresented his character. When it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain, literally in Hebrew it says, do not empty him of his name. We attempt to empty him of his name, his significance, because how we talk, how we act, solely his name. So when you claim the name of Jesus, when you claim the label of Christian, when you claim to be a follower of God, but live like the rest of the world, you are dragging his name through the mud, soiling his reputation. That's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. It's a little more serious now, isn't it? Look at number four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Again, like other commands, we have, we have a minimized view of this, of this one. It's not simply not mowing your yard on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Technically for Jewish people, Saturday is the Sabbath anyway, but this was not a day of slothful inactivity, but of spiritual service. It was an intentional day of stopping everything to focus on God. So the idea is to rest one day a week from your labors, from your busyness, and instead use your time to rest in God, to enjoy him, to enjoy the Lord and seek his face, to get away from distractions and just go be with God. That is good for your soul. Recalibrate your heart compass toward true north. It's to reorient your heart Godward. So those are the first four. That's the first tablet, if you will. Look at the second tablet. The next six are horizontal. These are our relationship with others. So our relationship with God is to be worshipful and humble. Our relationship with others is honoring and loving. Number five, honor your father and mother. And all parents said, oh, hearty amen there. Parents, we love that one, right? We should have saved that for next week on Mother's Day. But it's respecting authority of parents as they represent God to their children. The home is the basic unit of society, and so if there's social order in society, there should be social order in the home. 
Number six, do not murder. Because we value human life because every life was made in the image of God. From the womb to the tomb. Number seven, do not commit adultery. So now we're going from sanctity of life to sanctity of marriage, sanctity of the home, live a life of purity. Number eight, do not steal. Respect what belongs to others. When you steal, it pains others. It doesn't value others. Number nine, do not lie to one another. So now we're going from actions to words. It's really saying, in a broader context, watch how you talk to others. And then number 10, do not covet or envy anything that belongs to another, not their spouse, not their stuff. Be content. So now we're going from actions to words to thoughts. You know, in the ancient Near East, they had laws like the Code of Hammurabi. You may have heard of that. Uh, you know, you had uh, Assyrian laws. You had all these laws, but they all had to do with actions. Certainly not words and definitely not thoughts. They could care less about your heart and motives. Now we're getting down to the heart level. Check your heart. We play the comparison game all the time, right, to determine our righteous stature. Well, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler. Like, that's the baseline. So we think of big sins, murder, rape, treason, adultery. Well, I'm, I haven't done any of those, so I guess I'm good. I'm a good person as long as I don't commit those, but that's not how Jesus defines righteousness. Jesus takes it up a notch. You look in Matthew chapter five, and he redefines, not redefines, he clarifies murder and adultery. You've heard it said, but I say. He's taking it up a notch. This is, this is what happens when holiness grabs a hold of the law. I don't know if any of you have literally murdered someone. I hope not. <laughs> but Jesus says, if you have had hatred in your heart, bitterness, anger, unrighteous anger towards someone, you've committed murder. Now, show of hands, how many of you have murdered someone now? Come on now. Get those hands up. Get them hands up. We want to be a place of vulnerability here. All right. I, don't, I hope you haven't cheated on your spouse. You see where I'm going with this. Jesus says, but adultery is actually lustful glances, pornography, lustful thoughts, you know, any, anything along those lines, any kind of sexual immorality. Now, show of hands, come on now, let's be vulnerable. Adultery, here we go. Oh, this is not looking good, folks. How many of you ever lied? I mean, even the smallest white lie. Yep. Uh, you know, Cheryl shared it in her testimony. How many of you, uh, we talked about stealing, but it, stealing could be cheating, it could be cheating on your taxes, it could be, uh, uh, you know, goofing around at work, you're stealing company time. How many of you now have stolen Oh, this is, this is not good. And I just said earlier, all of us have committed idolatry and blasphemy, so we have a room full of murderers, adulterers, liars, thieves, idolaters, and blasphemers. Security! <laughs> this isn't good. And this is the point. It's okay to play the comparison game as long as we're comparing ourselves to Jesus, the perfect, spotless, blameless, righteous Son of God. There is no comparison. He is holy, and apart from him, we are not holy. So there are three ways that people approach God's commands and three purposes of God's commands. We're going to go through these quickly. So write these down. Three ways that people technically, typically approach God's commands. Number one, licentiousness. That means a, you know, James Bond, license to kill. This would be like, I have a license to sin. I, I can do whatever I want. I don't want to obey God because I love self. So I'm going to do whatever I want. Now, that seems like freedom, 
but it's bondage to sin. I don't want God to be my Lord. I want to be my own boss, my own master, but sin is your master. And enslavement to sin always leads ultimately to destruction. So licentiousness. Second, legalism. It's the other end of the spectrum. It's trying to be righteous by the law, by works alone, trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If I obey God, he will love me. It's an attempt to manipulate God. See, the difference between religion and relationship in Jesus is this. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Relationship with Jesus says, I'm accepted, therefore I want to obey. Notice the law is given after the Exodus. Do you realize that? That, is so, that order is so important. God redeems his people from bondage, then he gives them the law. He doesn't say, okay, if you obey the law perfectly, then I'll redeem you. No, he redeems them, then he gives them the law. Behavior modification does not change the heart. And that's what we heard from Cheryl's story. And some of you have grown up in maybe backgrounds that teach that and you wrestle with that. I still wrestle with that. I still wrestle with the law. But the law itself cannot change our heart. Legalism is bondage, not to sin, but to self-righteousness. So you have licentiousness, legalism, and the third way, the good way, liberty. I love God. And I want to obey him because of what Jesus did. The Israelites assumed that they could follow God's commands out of sheer willpower. But God needed to transform their hearts. Through Jesus, we get a heart transplant. Ezekiel 36, he takes our heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, he writes his law on, the, on our hearts. When you trust in Jesus, that's what he does. He transforms you. So you are now free to live for Jesus and find your greatest joy in him. That is true liberty. Now let's look at the three purposes of the law. Again, because I'm a pastor, we love alliteration. So here we go. Muzzle, mirror, map. Muzzle. The law restrains us from acting out our depravity. Think in terms of a muzzle on a violent dog, keeping it from biting everyone. The law maintains social order. Our daughter, our oldest daughter is in second grade and she just started basketball for the first time a couple months ago. You ever been to a basketball game with second graders? Let's just say I love my daughter very much. It's a little, it's woo, it is something. So uh, they had a game recently and it's down to, they're, they're, her team is losing by one point. There's 30 seconds left. The clock is ticking. And one of the teammates on our team shoots the ball. It bounces off the rim. And another girl grabs the ball. Now, all she has to do is put it back. Just put it back. And you win the game. And she grabs the rebound and dribbles to the other side of the court. And every parent is going, no! Ah! Now, after the game... I'm talking to our daughter, and she's distraught. She's sad. She's like, oh, I can't believe we lost. Now, what I should have said was, sweetie, did you try hard? Did you learn something? Did you have fun? Did you grow? That's what I should have said. <laughs> what I thought about saying was, well, sweetie, that's what happens when a teammate descends into chaos and just dribbles down the other side of the court. What I actually said was, well, sweetie, your team is just not good. <laughs> All right, don't judge. I'm not winning any parental awards anytime soon. 
But this is the point. You cannot play the game however you want and expect to flourish and thrive. It's chaos when it's unrestrained. And the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are for the right people with the right reasons, namely to show God's holiness, show, show God's followers how to live in light of who God is. God does not intend for people to merely know his character, but to share his character, which leads to the second thing, mirror. The law shows our sinfulness compared to God's holiness. These are not merely rules to be followed. They reflect God's holiness and our unholiness. Isn't it astounding that in Psalm 119, the largest, longest chapter in the Bible, David basically writes a love song about the law? Because the law reflected God's character, his holiness. He's saying, God, this is who you are, and this is beautiful. It's not about how to act better, it's how to understand God better. And we need a right view of God and a right view of self. The problem is God is holy and we are not. And too often I encounter people who are like, I know the Bible says this, but. God, I know, but. Do you understand how dangerous it is to say something like that? How audacious we want to remake God into our own image, which is what we're going to talk about next week. When someone is content to live in sin, they are blinded to the great holiness of God and the graveness of our sin. Sin is a thing not to be taken lightly. It is a grievous affront to our holy God. Please do not have such a brazen view of your sin and an indifferent view of God's holiness. The more we understand holy the more serious we take sin. Which leads to the third thing, map. The commands lead us to Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the satisfaction of God's holiness, so we are shielded from God's wrath through him. So obedience, then, is a response of devotion and adoration to the Redeemer who set us free. It's not an obligation, it's a joy. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And you're going to recognize some language that we just heard in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. The if-then statement is fulfilled in Jesus. Listen to this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Folks, through Jesus, he fulfills the law, and we are made holy and righteous in him. So we are a holy people, a treasure possession by God, a kingdom of priests, and that is glorious. One more passage I want us to look at because this is so good. I can't pass it up. Flip a few pages earlier. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to end on this. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness, a gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. It's referring to Exodus 19. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So you have the people trembling, Moses trembling, the mountain trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festive gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the first uh, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the what? 
mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Skip down to verse 28. Here it is. This is our next step. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Whoo! And that's it, folks. God is holy, and he makes his people holy, guiding us toward a flourishing life in Jesus.